Welcome to another episode of the uh, Adventures in DevOps podcast. This week, uh, I'm doing an interview with the folks from IBM. They're talking about the tool they just uh, released called Kui. And uh, yeah, our guests, I don't know if I remember all of your names. Um, I talked to Priya a couple weeks ago. Uh, Priya, do you want to introduce yourself and then introduce your uh, cohorts in crime over there? All right, sure. So hi, my name is Priya, Priya Nagpurkar. And I'm the director of Cloud Platform Research at IBM. So we are the research organization, and you know we work on Kubernetes, Cloud Platform, developer experience. Uh, today, that's today's topic. And so we have Nick Mitchell with us, who is a research staff member and also the technical lead for Kui. So you're going to hear from Nick about you know how we are simplifying uh, developer experience uh, with uh, command line interfaces, uh, dealing with cloud services and cloud platforms. And then we have uh, uh, Paul Castro, who is the manager of the broader serverless team. So we're really strong believers in forwarding the serverless kind of uh, methodology and principles here of making cloud programming as simple as possible. So that's the team here today to awesome. talk about Kui. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Yeah, that's exciting. Let's, let's start, though, before we get too deep into Kui. Let's talk about the IBM cloud research team. Like, wh what is that all about? Sure. So... Um... You know, as I said in the introduction, I, I represent the cloud platform research team. We also have cloud infrastructure research uh, to, to that deals more with the kind of uh, future hardware and, you know, the uh, stack below Kubernetes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, my team, the cloud platform research team, uh, we, we are really uh, looking at areas including Kubernetes, uh, DevOps, microservices, serverless technologies. I'll talk a little bit more about that. And uh, also, you know, containers, of course, is a big focus area here. So when we talk about Kubernetes as the orchestration mechanism for containers, we're really looking at cloud-native platform and how this platform should evolve. And really what motivates us is uh, what will people want to build on the cloud? What will people run on the cloud? And as, as uh, IBM, you know, we, of course, care about enterprise clients and enterprise workloads. So our focus, you know, I said earlier, uh, we are really passionate about serverless, and we are passionate about it because uh, we know that to really unleash the potential of the cloud and to to make progress on uh, what people can, what kind of things people can build on it, we need to make programming on the cloud much more easier than it is today. So uh, that's what we mean by serverless, where we want really the developers, every line of code they write, every uh, moment of time they spend thinking about it, to be about that business logic and not about the complexity of the platform or the fact that it's multi-cloud and I have multiple clusters and multiple vendors and providers. So um, on the one hand, you want that simplicity. On the other hand, of course, you know, complexity is there because you have to care about things like security, compliance, scale, uh, you know, uh, how do you provide all these features, but at the same time, free developers from having to be bogged down by these. So that's kind of the overall overall mission, and it includes, so we do have the distributed system skills, the Kubernetes skills, but our vision is let the platform do more for you, and let us build the tools that makes your job as building applications and managing them on the cloud, and not only, you know, 
uh, more productive, but also fun and delightful. So that's what Kui is about. How can we uh, have that delightful developer experience? Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and I think, you know, what I, I will say is I, I mentioned our expertise. I mean, it's the usual inverted pyramid, right? We, we want kind of to put our extensive expertise in distributed systems uh, uh, to, to work for people trying to build things on the cloud. So in the past, you know, we have um, to, to include some of the past work we have done towards these uh, goals. We have done Apache OpenWhisk, which was the first uh, open source platform for this notion of functions as a service, which means, you know, how can I run, easily run small uh, stateless actions uh, on a container-based cloud platform. So that was Apache OpenWhisk. We did Istio, which was also, uh, and it is an open source project. And the thought there was, again, similar. You know, how do you, now that you are in this microservices world, uh, this complexity shifts from developing these individual components to their interdependencies, their communication. So that was the notion behind Istio, which is also described as a service mesh, right? And it says, okay, let the developer offload to the mesh all the complexities of uh, resiliency, you know, uh, secure communication, and so on. And uh, I think uh, starting from like Apache OpenWave, Istio, we are big contributors to Kubernetes, and you know, it's a key part of our platform. And and now then to kind of more of DevOps and developer experience, we have Kui, which we'll talk about today. But also building on uh, Istio, we have Iterate, which is another open source project in this, how do I enable experimentation? How do I take those you know, platform features that come from Kubernetes, Istio, and how do I enable better experimentation around new releases, you know, A-B testing, and so on? Right. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it's, you know, you're talking about a lot of these things like Kubernetes or Istio or... Um, you know, OpenWhisk, which I really want to go play with, by the way. Um, and as as I look at these tools, you know, I'm I'm much more on the developer end. I don't, you know, I don't talk to as many people who do infrastructure. I do on this show. We kind of dabble in it on some of the other shows. And and so the way you're talking about this, as far as hey, how do we enable this? How do we open up the possibilities with this? Make it so that people can take advantage of the infrastructure that's out there for them. Um, mm -hmm. This is something that I hear developers complain about a lot, right? It's, oh, well, I have to figure out Docker and then I have to, you know, now I have a container. What do I do with it? And how do I get it orchestrated and, and put up and, you know, and then Kubernetes, what exactly does Kubernetes do for me? And am I going to mess it up? And, and so, yeah, right. you know, the idea of having tools that make it approachable and, and then be able to take uh, advantage of the powerful features that are there, it, it's really, really important. Yeah, and that's a lot of what Esprit said. Serverless, you know, there it's hard not to hear about serverless these days because yes. there's so much hype around it. Mm -hmm. But really, if you think about you know specific technologies, really the value is exactly what you said, which is can we allow the developers to do something really wonderful on the cloud without having to manage all of the things they have to do today? So you know, in the old days, uh, you could just you know fire up your IDE, you could write some code, uh, somebody else would deploy it for you. But even just to write cloud-native code today, you have to actually manage, in some sense, the development cloud. And so there's a lot of things you have to do besides coding just to get things to work. And as Peter was saying, if you, if you look at the things we're looking at, the service mesh, we're looking at OpenWhisk, you see this trend from VMs going into containers, containers going into container management. 
the container management management itself becoming something like a functions as a service or even something as like a serverless cloud that you would get in uh, Knative, which is something we're also looking at. Mm -hmm. We're moving in this direction where there's this trend that we want the cloud to be as accessible to developers as possible. And I mean, I have an anecdote where uh, I was um, commuting in on, on the train and behind me was a Python developer talking about how excited he was because he had discovered this functions as a service to help him build mm -hmm. uh, his application. And he loved it because all he had to do was write some Python code and then run it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really what we want to target is we want, want to be able to make sure that the cloud itself is the most powerful development platform that you can use without actually having to worry about really the, the, the low level things that you have to do today. Exactly. So yeah. I think, you know, as passionate as we are, as we are about the technologies that we've developed like Istio and uh, um, OpenWisk or even Kubernetes, I think they should be as invisible as possible, really speaking. Yes. The developers should not have to deal with the complexities of any of these. One of the remarkable yeah. things I found when I was at KubeCon in San Diego a few weeks ago, one of the talks I uh, went to was from, I think, uh, Airbnb and Lyft, I think, were giving a presentation on 10 ways to mess up your Kubernetes cluster. <laughs> talk. And uh, it was sort of the usual suspects. You know, you have to make sure you charge your deployment so that failures don't cascade. All these sort of lessons learned that, that any infrastructure maintainer kind of knows. But most application developers are learning the lessons again and again, you know, every time. And apparently Airbnb learned the lesson, learned 10 important lessons in the process of basically developing their own cloud at a very low level. And I think that's... Uh, that's the kind of theme that I think tooling and, and mm -hmm. in general, higher level abstractions can help with. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're talking about uh, serverless and Kubernetes and, you know, the, the, the different ways that we can pull all this stuff together. Um, and Kui, from what I understand, focuses mostly on Kubernetes. Um, but I've seen Kubernetes also kind of pitched as the way to accomplish a, a lot of these other things like uh, serverless, right? So you just spin up a container that does your serverless function, right? Except I haven't even worried about the container level layer, let alone any of the rest of it, right? So, so, so is Kubernetes kind of going to be the the platform going forward that we really care about in in the ops and DevOps space, or is this kind of a, a stepping off point to something else? I think. I mean, this is a good question, and I'm going to hand over to Nick just after a couple of comments here, because actually Kui is more than more than just for Kubernetes, so I okay. want definitely him to address that. But I think to the to your point, right? Um, and I, I just said that we would like it to be invisible, really. But right. today, we uh, are still building those abstractions, right? We are still uh, today a developer who is building a container as microservice is still interacting with Kubernetes, and you know, Kubectl is kind of a the, the CLI, the interface where I kind of mm -hmm. say, okay, now deploy this, bring this, bring the service up for me. And a lot of the DevOps tasks around deploying things, operating them, looking at their health, getting the logs, you know, and, and all of these tasks, the various DevOps workflows. And I think Nick can comment more on uh, which ones did we identify as high value ones. We are interacting, developers are having to interact with Kubernetes today. Right. I think the platform itself continues to evolve so that we really uh, build better layers of abstraction where they, these interactions will change in the future. So as I think Paul mentioned, I just care about Python code and here it is, and you know, don't even care if it's deployed on Kubernetes. So we are making progress there too. So Kubernetes is certainly the platform underneath. 
right? That is, uh, I think it has several kind of great attributes about why uh, the industry at large is converging around Kubernetes as the platform for containerized uh, cloud-native workloads and applications going forward. And at the same time, we are building better abstractions, be it with Knative, you know, which is an open source project. Um, as they evolve, I think the nature of interaction of developers will also evolve. And, um, you know, so I think uh, that said, Kui uh, has a philosophy that extends to far more than Kubernetes. I think today, since Kubernetes community, you know, faces key pain points, I think that's why um, we chose to focus. But I think Nick can say both about the beginnings and why we are focusing on Kubernetes now and how this might evolve in the future, right, from a Kui perspective. Yeah, so we actually started, um, I've had a, basically my career now at IBM spanning 19 years now. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a long history, but most, if you actually look back at all the stuff I've worked on, it's tools in various forms, from, you know, old Java-based tooling, you know, with um, with AWT and all that swing, um, into browser-based tooling, and on that whole world of consoles, and, and now to CUI. Um, it's, uh, it's it's remarkable to to think about the that there's, there's really are some common themes. You, said, you asked whether or not Kubernetes is going to be the abstraction we think about in the, in the future, and it's, it's hard to say for certain. We may have better higher-level abstractions, but I think what will remain constant um, and, and is this need for um, exploration. I think that's one of the big things that we find again and again in tooling, to, to allow for this kind of open-ended exploration that you have to be able to pose questions, the, the tool will give you some, some answers, some partial answers, and you need to be able to refine what you see into better better questions so that you can get the actual answer you need. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really what tools are helping to enable, that kind of exploration. Right. And it's, uh, it turns out that, and I've spent a lot of time developing browser-based consoles, and they're pretty awesome. In fact, I was just talking with some of our colleagues here before, and it's, I think I've heard this from a number of people that that the beauty, the ease of use of consoles is definitely something we should aspire to. Um, at the same time, those consoles um, oftentimes are fairly limiting because the designers have to design in certain use cases, which is the very power of them. They're making these high-level use cases like create a cluster or modify a cluster or make a new container of mm -hmm. uh, a certain those Python actions. Those, we can codify those high-level tasks, which is very beneficial. But at the same time, as soon as you need to go off the rails a little bit, just a little bit, from what the designers had anticipated, if you're asking a question that they didn't anticipate, or not quite posing it in not quite the way they anticipated, the, the, the browser-based console becomes almost a dead end, There's, because it can only do so much. There's only so many buttons you can click on on the screen. And so, so command line interfaces, CLIs, are, I think, a natural place people gravitate to because of, they allow for that much more open-ended kind of uh, question and answer. I can say cuddle get pod, and then to get the list of my pods in my cluster, if, if, if I want then to ask for the details of that of a particular pod, but I only care about the status, or I want to format it in a particular way because some other tooling needs to consume the output in a particular way. Maybe it needs JSON or it needs YAML. I can I can do all that from my command line. I can choose whether the output is YAML or JSON. I can choose right. to project out certain fields. 
I can sort of do whatever I want because KubeCuddle is such a well-designed CLI. Um, there's no way I could get that kind of open-ended um, kind of interaction model with the, with the console. So that's kind of the tension that I found over the years with, with tooling. In fact, I work on the OpenWISP project. One of my first tasks as I was working on that project was to design their browser-based console. And concurrently with my work, the CLI developers were working on the OpenWISP CLI. And I almost felt a bit of envy that they were able to do things very quickly as they developed the tooling that would take me forever in the browser-based console. Because in a console, you have to you have to design it. You have to make graphics. You have to make icons. You have to choose the color scheme. You have to make sure you're consistent with the color scheme with a larger platform. I guess just one point is that it's not that CLIs don't undergo design, but not to the extent that you would have in a console. But yeah, the visual CLI design requires a different skill set, whereas the command line, it the, the focus is on the command line. Right, yeah. Oftentimes it reflects, say, some back-end API that yeah. the CLI Whereas, as Nick was saying, uh, a console will be task-oriented, and so there will be certain tasks that will be that, that console may be optimized for, but that is both good and bad in the sense that it's good if that's what you're trying to do. But as you know, debugging, for instance, it's an intellectual exercise. You have to do detective work. Mm -hmm. So not every bug is the same. And so how do you encourage exploration? As I, I have had conversations with Nick about this. How do you encourage the exploration and aid the developer in discovering things, but not necessarily over-optimize or lock that developer into a certain path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of the tension that, that I was trying to explore when I first started uh, thinking about this, the KUI project at the time. It wasn't called KUI. Um, it was called Function Shell because we were working on Cloud Functions. Um, Fair enough. But we want to, so the fact is that I love the ability to encode tasks, to have graphics, to be able to click on links as opposed to have to copy and paste long auto-generated names. Um, there's a lot of reasons to love a console, um, even if sort of develop a browser-based console, even if even if you're some you know, super duper expert that's worked on CLIs for dozens of years, there's browser-based consoles offer, are, are attractive, I think, even to those jaded, you know, old school developers. Um, but the, 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 that, that limiting factor for this debugging kind of question and answer exploration is, is, a, is a big problem. So the question is, can we find some, some marriage between those two worlds? Can we have it so that we have a CLI sort of oriented experience so that I can go off the rails when I need to? I can say dash o YAML or dash o JSON if I want one of the other outputs without having to wait six months for the designer to add a JSON button in their UI. Um, that's, that was sort of what we're trying to explore. I want to be able to issue a command, for example, kubectl get pod, and instead of seeing just ASCII art, I'd like to see HTML. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that HTML could just be, to start with, a, a, an HTML table, but maybe now we can think about the, instead of just showing the resource name, I can make the resource name clickable. And when I click on that, on that name, for example, the name of my pod, um, I, instead of having to copy and paste the name of the pod and retype a command, kubectl get pod, paste, dash o yaml, which is what you'd have to do in a pure CLI, I just click on a link. And so that's, that's where I feel like, we, yes, we focus on Kubernetes for the past year or so because it's, it's a pretty hot commodity. It's an important market. Um, but I think this general, this general notion of 
of enhancing this detective work, enhancing the debugging and development experience, because oftentimes de- development is is debugging. It's simultaneous. Mm-hmm. Right? You do something, did it work? And that kind of back and forth interrogative kind of experience is is what we do as developers on a daily basis. We do something, then we see it work, and then we go to the next step. Um, right. And that's that back and forth between between of iterating between tasks of editing and an ID and then clicking save and then deploying it and then checking whether the deployment is what I actually desired. The deployment work as I expected. Are all my resources up and ready to go? And then using it and looking at logs to see whether or not the output is 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 as expected. All those tasks I think are 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 broader than Kubernetes. I think we could we use it for open with. In fact, um, if you look, if you search in, in, on GitHub, we have a, a, a repository that's using using the same core frameworks that our Kubernetes GUI tool and uses, but instead of orient, orienting it towards Kubernetes, it's oriented towards OpenWhisk. So we have um, double clickable downloads, for example, of client builds that will give you either a Kubernetes-based experience or an OpenWhisk-based experience. And they both they both have the same they both follow the same basic mold. Um, you issue commands, you get tabular graphical tables in response. You click on links, and then you can drill down to the details and you can navigate from there on. When I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then, and the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues, or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. Great. And I have... What Mitch is touching on, I think, is, you know, as IBM research, you know, our job is to actually do innovation. Mm-hmm. And so you look at, say, the, the ASCII terminal that we all love, know and love, and we look at CLIs, I mean, it's clear that, that ASCII terminals have survived the test of time. I mean, they work. But the actual nature of them hasn't changed since, for instance, the teletype days, right, where you're typing commands into a shell. Now, this isn't to say, again, that it's not useful. Like I said, it's withstood the test of time. But, you know, we're now living in a graphical world as well. And is there a way in which we can now make sense of how do we take something that is solid and true, but also figure out ways in which we can then make it something new and make it something interesting? So I think there's the innovation part of the job that we're doing, which means that CUI itself is uh, something beyond just Kubernetes. But then also, as an industrial research lab, we have to try to do things that are very practical. And if you look at, for instance, uh, surveys that you've seen, like developer surveys from CNCF and other organizations, it is one of the concerns for developers that complexity of the cloud today, and it's particularly mm-hmm. Kubernetes, is quite high. Oh, yeah. And it oh, yeah. makes sense, right? Because Kubernetes is addressing a problem that is complicated, you know, large distributed system managing potentially hundreds of thousands of containers. And it was coming out of a heritage where uh, the people that are, are using it or the people that are writing it, you know, they're, they're living that day to day. And so 
a lot of the abstractions that you have in Kubernetes are focused on supporting those types of, uh, you know, ops. You know, it's a DevOps tool, but it's more on the ops side. And so I think where we can help with something like GUI is then to begin to innovate around that environment. And so it's a, a very, um, I mean, I know we're saying that GUI is broader than just Kubernetes, but Kubernetes is such a, uh, an important target for us to try to improve because we want people to use the cloud. Mm -hmm. We want you as a developer to not have to worry about um, all of the things that can go wrong with Kubernetes. And I, as Nick said, he spent his entire career trying to make things easier for you uh, to do things. And the cloud is such a huge target that uh, Kubi can really, really help you. So Kubernetes, it is just one potential application, but it's a big one. Yep, absolutely. So. Um, I mean, there's a lot here that we talked about. Um, can you kind of just walk me through a workflow that I might use with Kui? So I, I, I grab it, I install it, you know. Sure. Let's say that I already have, you know, a connection to a, a Kubernetes cluster somewhere, you know, Microsoft or Google or DigitalOcean, or I've set up my own and I'm running stuff there already. How does Kui help me with that? And then, and then we'll talk a little bit about, okay, I'm still on VPSs. How do I, how do I move my stuff over easily with Kui? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so first is, uh, yeah, you, so we have some pre-built distributions. So first you would download for your platform. We have builds for Windows, Linux, and Mac. We can right. do others, but those are what we have for now. Um, or you can clone or own the repo. It's all open source. You can get cloned, npm install, and then npm start. And now you have the same thing as you would have gotten if you downloaded one of the pre-builds. So and it's written in JavaScript? So the, what we've done is we've coded it in TypeScript, actually. Okay. Um, it's, uh, yeah, which compiles down to JavaScript. But yeah, so, right. so it's the, what we, and what we've done in Cooley is we've actually leveraged um, the Electron framework. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're familiar with Slack or VS Code, um, they're all, uh, and a bunch more, but those are two high profile ones that are all also using the Electron framework. So Kui, um, is some TypeScript code that compiles out of JavaScript and then gets shipped, um, as part of an Electron application. So when that double clickable that you'll down, that you can download or that you'll build yourself if you npm install, um, will, um, include the Kui code and of course Chromium and all that, all the stuff that you get from Electron. And so the first thing you would do um, after downloading is uh, you can uh, choose to double click on the executable and launch it. And then you'll have what you'll see when it launches up is, um, is a terminal. And from there on, you can use it as you would any other terminal. You can LS and PWD and CD and git clone and, mm -hmm. and issue any other CLI commands that you might. You can issue Emacs and VI, any other you know, terminal-oriented commands that you might. Um, or you can issue kubectl commands. And, if you issue commands that Kui happens to have enhancements for, and the way we've architected Kui is that um, it, you can issue commands, and you can all if, if there's a plugin, a Kui plugin that ships with the with the client that you downloaded, that knows how to handle that command, you'll get enhanced enhanced an enhanced response, some sort of graphically enhanced response. If there's no registered Kui plugin that knows how to handle that command, you'll just get back whatever you would have gotten normally. From, a, from a, normal, a normal terminal, so we have, and that in the default clients that we that we that we ship for Kubernetes, there's enhancements for Kubectl and Helm. There's also um, some initial enhancements for 
um, the OpenShift CLIOC, um, and that's where we've started. Um, we're, we're very eager to, to accept contributions for other CLIs or to enhance the, the plugins we currently have. If you think there's a better way, for example, of visualizing, visualizing logs than what you see, it's all open source, so we're definitely um, eager to accept feedback and contributions. So, for example, you might start by saying kookuddle get pods. Um, we actually have a shorthand. You can say kget pods if you want. Um, and we also have some built-in support for tab completion. So mm -hmm. if you have a pod named foo, you can say kookuddle get f tab, and it'll complete it. And if you use that, that full terminal um, by double-clicking, um, you'll get that tab completion without having to worry about configuring your ZSH or bash, you know, a tab completion. It just comes out of the box working. Um, nice. And when you issue that kget pods, um, you'll see a table. Um, inside of the table, um, each row will just be the will be a pod that, like you would have expected from a normal kubectl get pods response from a, from the kubectl CLI. But instead, you'll see two main enhance and main enhancements to that table. The first is that each of the pod names will be clickable. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll get back to that in a second, what happens when you click. Um, but the second main thing you'll see is that the status column, whether the pod is online or offline, for example, or whether it's terminating, all the sort of standard Kubernetes status um, messages that are associated with resources, um, you'll see those, but, but we associate a color, a traffic light, red, yellow, green color with each of those. So um, that's a fine, we find that's a quick way of of scanning your your pods of resources right. in your cluster to get a sense of the overall status and health. Um, you know, traffic lights I think are generally a good thing. So that's uh, and if and if you type dash w or dash dash watch, so kubectl supports watching tables, and okay. Kui does as well. So if I say kubectl get pods dash w, um, then what will happen is that the the rows will update. For example, mm -hmm. if you on the side, or if, or if, or some automated process changes the status of a pod, it terminates it or, or updates it with <clears throat> a new version. Um, then the table will change, for example, from red to green or green to yellow. You'll see that just <clears throat> in line with the table. Nice. That's in, in contrast with, for example, uh, the normal kubectl CLI, which also supports watching. But in a normal CLI, if you say kubectl get pods dash W, <clears throat> It doesn't update the table. You'll just see sort of a new row fly by, sort of appended to the output every time some some update. So Kui sort of enhances that watch experience by giving you a fixed table with the rows updating as as things change. And then the, the second big thing, getting back to I guess to the first thing, is the clickability of the rows. Um, so in kubectl on the normal CLI, <clears throat> if I wanted to drill down and get the details of that foo pod. I would have to type kubectl get <clears throat> get pod foo dash oyaml. That's just the sort of bizarre um, way that the kubectl developers had decided to drill down to the details of a pod. You have to say basically dash oyaml mm -hmm. or dash ojson. Right. Um, and so that's for foo something as short as foo. That's probably no big deal. Um, but typically in a in a cluster, you're going to have pods whose names are auto generated. By right. some deployment or some some other external mechanism, SDO, something is generating the name of that of that pod or resources generally, and so the the resource names tend to be very long and cryptic. They're going to have a lot of numbers and characters in them, and uh, so you're not going to remember them. 
Um, you can maybe copy and paste them, and um, or and maybe you can tab complete them, but but both of those are end up being fairly tedious. <clears throat> so in CUI, in the CUI terminal, you would just click on one of the click on that long name, and when you click on it, <clears throat> you'll see the details. And that's I think the second main way that CUI innovates. The first being just sort of the the tabular you know enhancements. The second main way is on <clears throat> on what we display, how we display the contents of a resource. So pods, services, secrets, um, Helm charts, they're all, uh, they're all resources in your cloud and each of them has sort of their details. For example, a pod may have containers, containers have logs. Um, and those, those aspects of a resource, I think are, are, are a, a, a nice way to anchor navigating the details of that resource. And so in CUI, what you'll see is that when you click on that pod is you'll see a sidecar slide in from, from the side and you'll then get a split screen view. So now you'll be able to see simultaneously your terminal and all the tables that, that might be there. Okay. But then the other side of the screen, the right-hand side of the screen, um, sort of in a 60-40 split roughly, will be showing um, in that sidecar, will be showing the details of that resource, the foo resource that you clicked on. And the tabs, it'll be a sort of a tabular view, and the tabs will show, um, for example, a summary of the resource. And then you, one of the tabs will also be able to show the full gory details of all the YAML. Um, <laughs> and, and then we have a, a couple of tabs kind of in between. For example, there's a tab that's just called containers. Right. It just shows me, I can then quickly then see what the status is of each of the individual containers inside of a pod. If I want to get the logs associated with a pod, um, or I want to get the events associated with a pod. And Kubernetes, those are sort of distinct concepts. The logs are the logs of the underlying containers, mm -hmm. as the events are kind of lifecycle events for, um, for the resource as a whole. So CUI then manifests those as buttons in that sidecar. So if I want to see the logs, I click on show logs. Um, in contrast, in, in a normal CLI, you would have had to remember it, okay, what exactly, how do I get the logs? It's kubectl. It's not get logs. It's kubectl logs. Right. So you just have to remember a little bit of these details. And as an as a super duper expert, mm -hmm. those things become second nature. Um, but one thing I found is from a cognitive sort of perspective is that for myself, you know, even with the years and years of, of development experience under my belt, there's some things that I just, I just don't want to remember. <laughs> right. Because you know, they're just, you know, why why should I remember that? Kubectl logs or Kubectl dash o YAML. There's just details like the more little, minute, unimportant details I have to remember, the less time I'm spending on the things I actually need to remember for my job. Right. And so, I think that's really one of the the, the last biggest theme of, of of CUI as a whole that sort of transcends, I think, Kubernetes is is how can we find just as a community that balance between what should be made into graphics and buttons, you know, easy shortcuts like show logs and show events and right. container tabs. Um, you know, are, at what point do we go too far and become a pure console, you know, mm -hmm. and now you can't experiment and go off the rails. And that's, I think, where I, where I want to treat CUI is actually a bit of a testbed, an experiment mm -hmm. in, that, in that discussion. I think that we've had some initial experiments on our own right. at IBM as to what the right balance is between CLI and typing and yeah. going off the rail and, 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 and the, the matrix of, of a console, you know, all the 
the gory details, um, which are important. You have to be able to go off the rails. But at the same time, how can we encode what's important for for daily tasks that it, that and get rid of the unimportant details? And, and right, basic. right. And just to add to what Nick said, um, as Kui has a test bed, um, you know, we hope that as a community, uh, you know, developers will look at Kui and uh, the way that Nick has architected Kui currently is has a plugin architecture that has a formal API in which you can extend your own CLI. So you could just well, grab nice. for the you know, boilerplate uh, uh, repo that you could just clone yourself and, uh, as Nick says, clone and own. And you can either extend uh, what uh, we've already done with Kubernetes, or you know you have your favorite CLI that you use and you want to try to uh, do some work around that with Kubi, you could do that. Or you could uh, take a new, you know, when you write a new, a new CLI, uh, you now have the option of having this sort of interactive visualization, which you didn't have before. So now imagine if, if we can then unleash the developer community and say, hey, you know, ASCII terminals are great, but you now have this a new degree of freedom mm -hmm. in which you can then create CLI tools. Again, that's, I, I think, part of a lot of the work that, that Nick and team have been doing uh, in the past couple of months is really trying to make sure that that's architected so that it is an experimental platform and it, and it does have APIs that you could, again, just, just conform to and then and easily write your own extended CLI. Yeah, I, I'm really digging that in the sense that, you know, I've used uh, all kinds of other tools, grep, netstat, you know, and it's like, minus what <laughs> to get what I want, right? Or to get it formatted the way I want. And so, yeah, just by having kind of a an, an easy and quick command that I can just throw at it and have it come back with the information I need. And then, yeah, um, you know, sometimes iTerm or some of the other ones, you know, they'll, they'll be able to pick out, oh, this should be clickable or whatever, right? And so I can command click something and it'll take me to the path on my machine. Um, Visual Studio Code's terminal also does that. But yeah, just having a really convenient, okay, this is what I expect. Um, I've had similar setups in stuff like um, Emacs, right? Where you, you, you click something or hit something and it'll open another panel. But yeah, just, just having that default there, or not that default, that behavior there by default so that I don't have to remember it and I can just kind of navigate it. What's the word I'm looking for? In, in a very natural way. I think that's the... the, the the challenge that I think that the Kui framework side of Kui is trying to address is how does how do I enhance that? What happens when I click on that link? Mm -hmm. And for most in most cases, in like iTerm and, and and VS Code, those terminals will recognize, for example, URLs, and so right. they have some built-in logic for recognizing that pretty common pattern that there's going to be URLs yeah. emitted somewhere in the console. And so that's that's uh, so the the question is how do we make that Richer. How do we make it much mm -hmm. more sort of ontological, if you will? Right. That, that's going this and navigational maybe is a better way of saying it. That and I think that's really a, one of the biggest themes in in modern development is that we're navigating, we're experimenting. I want to go from from pod from deployments to pods, pods to containers, containers to logs, and right. and maybe and or maybe to events. And each event has an associated resource. I want to go to that resource and emit it the event. You know, and that's part a natural part of the development experience is this navigation through some complex ontology of resource types, mm -hmm. and uh, so then to that gets us back to the question is what happens when I click, mm -hmm. and I think that if, 
in some ways, Kui is essentially that is 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 a way of of enabling of of developers of of resource types. For example, if you have a new resource type that you've developed for your own company, that's uh, I'll call it the you know the the Provo research type to keep in the Salt Lake clear. <laughs> I don't know whatever you have you have the you have some new resource type, and uh, it's going to have it's going to have some semantics you'd like to encode for your own developers. Like, for example, right. what, what tabs should be shown? What are the important aspects of that resource type that should be should be surfaced that are more important than others? You need to prioritize the information. What what happens? What 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 are the relationships between a resource type A and a resource type B? Are mm-hmm. they connected in any way? And uh, that's uh, that's one of the things that we're trying to trying to enable with CUI is, is, in, is allowing for that kind of um, much sort of deeper and richer enablement of CLIs beyond right. just URLs. Makes sense. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. And, and so, yeah, so you can just use this because it wraps over uh, uh, kubectl or kubectl is kind of the way my brain translates that. Um, yep. But yeah, and so if, if I have that set up already to access my cluster, then I, I get the tools and I get all the niceties right off the bat. Yeah. Um, what am I looking at then if I'm just getting into Kubernetes? Like, how does how does Kui help me there? Yeah. So this is the case where we're we're getting much more into the experimental side of 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 Kui. But um, we've so we've definitely had some thought there. But this is one of those cases where it's a lot more thought is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in one of the plugins we've developed for for Kui, um, it was actually developed by. Um, a couple of uh, an intern and someone who's sent left um, is a sort of a tutorial kind of um, Katakoda style um, extension to Kui, but a, in a terminal kind of way. So, mm-hmm. for example, I'd like to be able to make it so that when I have uh, kubectl get pods, um, if I've issued a partial command, for example, it's incomplete. Kubectl get return. I didn't. No, I don't know what that. Or maybe it's kubectl return. I'd like to have some guidance. And if you do that in KubeCuddle today, um, you'll get this mountain. You can try it yourself. Yeah. Have KubeCuddle return, and you'll get back a mountain pages, multiple pages mm-hmm. of usage information. And uh, we, so that's, it's, it's great because it's given me all the ways in which I can use KubeCuddle, but it's not structured particularly well from a learning perspective. And so we're, we have a couple of thoughts on how we can enhance this, this experience of learning a command line interface but also learning the the nature of development in that in that world, in a Kubernetes world or an OpenWhisk kind of world. And so we have a, the um, plugins that enhance both the usage output, 
of command line uh, of normal command lines. So in CUI, when you type kubectl return, you'll get um, something that's a little prettier. I think it's from a designer perspective. I think it still needs some work, but it's certainly prettier and more useful. There's clickable links. There's some structure, more like you'd, what you'd expect to see from a console. If you click on the uh, the question mark, the help in the upper mm -hmm. right of the terminal, um, you'll get um, some guided tutorials in a Katakoda kind of style. So you'll be able to um, get some initial learning about Kubernetes or about um, about OpenWhisk in the case of OpenWhisk. And so we have some tutorials written for both of those. This is definitely a case I think that there's a lot more to explore. Right, and I think again, you know, um, since we're talking about exploratory things, I can just touch on this, but we have uh, collaborations and discussions with our AI research colleagues where, where we're kind of trying to say, can we have approaches to, you know, kind of reasoning, automated reasoning and, and so on to, again, help people who are new with next best action. You know, people, when they try this, they try these commands next mm -hmm. or help them again with the navigation because a lot of this is navigating, you know, the 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 resources and objects in a, in a particular uh, system, Kubernetes in this case. So can we, you know, again, uh, encode that knowledge and, and have kind of uh, various uh, AI techniques either based on model-driven uh, reasoning and so on, or even just based on history, right? Usually people, when they do these kinds of commands, they do these other kinds of commands. So we have kind of uh, initial thoughts about this, some exploration that's planned just, and going. Yeah, I mean, like for example, in uh, in the Istio context, right. being able to say, I'd like to roll out a new, I roll out a new version of this application, and there is a particular command line incantation that you can you can issue if you remember the complex command structure to make that happen. But can we make it a little more natural? Exactly. Way to express that Correct. Desire? So I think we, you know, we have. Um, explored ideas uh, that are, you know, we, we have heard about these um, virtual assistants, right, with customer care and all of these scenarios, right? We hardly talk to a real person on the phone anymore when you call Verizon, for example, or any of that. So virtual assistants in this context, virtual assistants for developers, I think we have had explorations around that also. So as Nick is saying, can I interact in a more natural way, you know, and the virtual assistant is the one that's going to then have this encoded kind of knowledge graph uh, and is going to help you collect the right information, uh, plug in the parameters that otherwise you would have to explicitly lay down and specify, right? And it's going to do that from the context that's already there. So uh, from the context of the you know previous, I might have just uh, deployed a new version and then saying, hey, now increase the traffic to my just deployed new version so instead of having to spell out every possible thing that the actual API asks you for, can I, you know, minimize kind of the information I ask for and fill in the details based on the context, based on the model that I've built and understood, and uh, based on the history of what things, of what has been done previously. And we actually explored this even in the context of uh, collaborative workflows, right? So usually if you're rolling out a new thing, there might be two or three personas involved there, right? In saying, hey, I have this new thing ready to roll out. And then somebody might run the test and there might be some kind of, you know, it might be gated on uh, various other things happening before you get the green signal and go ahead. And, you know, how can you kind of uh, take some of these DevOps workflows and make the interactions much more productive, much more easier, and remove the unnecessary details, right?
Um, so I think these are some of the thoughts for where this deep domain expertise, not just in the specific command and how to type it, but sometimes there are difficulties even in understanding and navigating the, the resource space, you know, the objects uh, of this ecosystem. Uh, do I even know, you know, when I roll out a new thing, there's probably a version, a service, uh, you know, maybe three, two or three abstractions that are actually involved there. And I, as a developer, don't even know that. So uh, I think helping helping people navigate this by uh, building the ontologies, the knowledge graph, you know, the, the models, and um, then with uh, concrete things like next best action or context, can we help them navigate this? Nice. We're kind of getting toward the end of our scheduled time and I don't want to go over. Um, it, it, are there places where people can go look at documentation or uh, watch videos that'll walk them through this or things like that? Yeah. So we have um, we uh, we have a GitHub um, that you that that hosts the main Kui, and you can get there. I think as if you go to Kui.tools, we have kind of a short link that will bring you um, to a landing page that offers uh, in turn links to their GitHub site and so on. You can also just search for um, just go to IBM slash Kui on GitHub, and uh, you'll get to the site for the main the main resource. Uh, the main resource site for all that has download links. You can clone and own it from there and so on. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, one thing that we do at the end of the show, um, we do two things. One is, is just to give you all an opportunity to share um, links to your Twitter, like your Twitter handle, your GitHub handle, your uh, blog URL, anything like that. So um, if you all want to just, you know, go around the horn and let us know where to find you online, that would be great. And then we'll move on to the other segment. Yeah, we'll start with uh, Nick. Okay. Yeah, so uh, on GitHub, I'm Starpit. Um, Sci-fi sci reference. You guys can look up. Um, but uh, and we have we actually have a Medium blog. Um, I was just trying to remember. I, I always go to it from a short link, so I can't even remember the name. It's the Visual Web Terminal. The Visual Terminal, I think. Or the Graphical Terminal, I think, is what I called it. Mm -hmm. on, on Medium. Um, yeah, that, that shows uh, your, you know, desire to not remember unnecessary things. So you don't remember the medium yeah. link. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. for for me, I guess I, maybe I will just say at, at Priya Nagpurkar is my Twitter handle. I think my GitHub uh, GitHub will not be nearly as interesting as, as uh, Nick and Paul's. So I'll, I'll uh, you know, leave that out. I'll leave it at kind of Twitter uh, for me. And I think the other thing I will just say is um, we mentioned IBM Kui, right? So that's uh, the GitHub repo. I think uh, really and Kui.tools, I think that, that would be kind of the place to, to uh, go from. I'll uh, hand over to Paul. Yeah, on Twitter, I'm Paul C. Castro. Um, I recently actually started to use this the way it was meant to be used. Uh, I had originally joined it years ago because I was doing a research project and I wanted to just use the API. But then uh, someone said, oh, doing Twitter straight, so I switched over. So uh, I have an elite set of followers, uh, which is like five. <laughs> uh, happy, happy to have anyone who wants to, they can follow me. I'll, I, I try to post things about serverless these days, uh, and also the work that, that's going on in our group. Uh, I'm also Paul C. Castro, oh no, no, I'm Paul Castro on GitHub. Um, and you can find me there. Awesome. It the last segment of the show is picks. And what that is is just shout outs about stuff you like. So 
Um, I mean, we have people pick movies or TV shows. We've had people pick uh, tech tools that they're using. I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? So um, I'm going to throw out a couple of picks just to kind of give you an idea of how this works. And then you can shout out about whatever you want. So uh, one pick that I have is Discourse. Uh, Discourse is an online forum system. I I really, really love it. I've lately been playing with it to put together a JavaScript forum because I couldn't find one that I liked. And I'm hoping to be able to build that community up. So you can go to javascriptforum.net and join in. It's brand new as we record this, but we're a couple of weeks ahead. So by the time this comes out, um, I should have a bunch of past hosts, guests, etc. from JavaScript Jabber, which has nearly 400 episodes. Um, and so we, we should be able to have a good uh, set of conversations there. Um, I'm also trying to decide if I want to split it off for like an Angular forum, React forum, or Vue forum. Vue has its own forum, though. It's just half Chinese. And Anyway, I, I, don't, I don't read or write or speak Chinese, so it's a little rough getting those um, di digests. But uh, anyway, yeah, really, really enjoy that. So I'm going to pick that. Um, I'm also going to pick CodeFund, CodeFund.io. Uh, disclaimer, um, Eric Berry and Nate Hopkins, who are kind of the two main guys behind it, are good friends of mine. Nate was actually my mentor when I got into programming 14 years ago. And uh, Eric was kind of instrumental in getting me into podcasting and things like that. So um, I know them very well, but it's really interesting at ethical advertising for programmers. So uh, codefund.io, go check them out. And then uh, the last pick, I started watching a TV show um, that I really enjoyed. It's on Amazon Prime. It is an Amazon Prime original. And I'll just warn you, if you're a little bit sensitive to like language and content, uh, some of the Amazon Prime originals are a little bit heavy on cursing and uh, sex scenes and things like that. Uh, some of them aren't, and this one hasn't been so far. So, you know, they, they have dropped a few F-bombs. So if that's enough to turn you off, then don't watch it. But uh, that said, it's really, really fascinating show. And essentially, the setup is, is that um, the Allies lost World War II. Oh. And good. it takes place in like the 60s. And so um, the eastern U.S. is controlled by the, the Nazi regime and the west coast is controlled by the Japanese imperial regime. And the Philip K. Dick novel, right? Yes, it's based on the Philip K. Dick novels. So I'm only halfway through the first season. So I can't tell you like, and this is kind of how it goes because, you know, I've only kind of seen a few of the main characters interact. So um, I've, I've really enjoyed it, though. They kind of go out into no man's land and wind up meeting up there and you know find out about these characters but it's really really fascinating my wife has a deep fascination with world war ii because her grandfather mm -hmm. fought in it so did mine now now that i think about it anyway so um yeah really enjoyed that so those are those are the picks that i have my pick is um so i try to, to get away from technology whenever i can <laughs> so my pick is i found so on youtube there's this guy who's he has the most amazing videos. It's crime pays, but botany doesn't. If you're interested in, in the natural world at all, this is this guy from Chicago. He lives in the Bay Area currently, but he's from Chicago. He has a super heavy accent. He has a tattooed centimeter ruler on his finger so that when he's pointing at flowers, he can see how big they are. He's, he has this amazing memory for the Latin names of every possible flower in the United States just amazing. He's just super entertaining to watch. You learn a lot and he's just entertaining. 
just amazing. Sardonic humor, amazing. Nice. Priya, do you have anything that you want us to enjoy? Sure. I think uh, so. I, I would like to pick kind of two other open source projects that I'm really pro passionate about. And the first one is called Salsa, S O L S A. And it's, you know, you can also find it at uh, uh, github.com, IBM Salsa. And I think this is also along the lines of uh, developer simplicity, you know, complexity of evolving software. Kubernetes has a blank platform and software architecture as code, basically. So I think uh, I just see it as uh, that evolution, right? We are pushing the boundaries on serverless here. And here is another kind of thought we have that's going to really simplify, I think, building enterprise applications at scale on, on cloud. So that's Salsa. That's uh, my pick number one. And I think the pick number two, again, experimentation, I think just as a theme, I also am really passionate about in technology and life, you know. So iterate is, is this thought around enabling experimentation. So uh, iter and eight, the number, dot tools. And this is also what we open sourced recently and also relevant to the DevOps community, right? The A-B testing, canary rollouts, um, problem determination and SRE going into those areas. Those are two, my two picks. And I think they're really along these lines of uh, further simplification. Um, and tooling. Awesome. Paul? So I guess I have a couple. One just real quick, uh, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have probably used this, it's the Wi-Fi analyzer. Uh, I do some volunteer work at a, at a school that meets, uh, you know, bi-monthly, and I have surprisingly fallen into having to do network engineering uh, for them. So uh, this sort of just happened by chance. And uh, just extending the Wi-Fi and being able to analyze it, uh, being able to use that tool has been incredibly useful, and I highly encourage you to use it if you have problems with your Wi-Fi. Uh, the second pick that I have is not – well, it is technology, but it's not related to cloud. It's, uh, it's a guitar tuner. Now, if you're familiar with guitar tuners or stringed instrument tuners, they, they have these tuners that you can clip on the instruments. And then when you play the string, it vibrates, and then the tuner is able to pick out the note that you're playing based on the vibration. But it's a particular type of guitar tuner that I like, which I recently discovered. It's a very low profile guitar tuner that fits right onto the head of the instrument. And now a typical guitar tuner, like I explained, if, if you see like musicians using it, they, they kind of stick out and you can see this thing clamped onto their instrument. But this low profile tuner is very, very hard to see but yet it's there when you need it. And what I really like about it is that it works when, I, when, when you press it. I mean, it works just like a normal guitar tuner. But because it's integrated in so nicely, because it's so low profile, it's almost like it's part of the instrument. So it really changes the experience of you having this tuner so that it's a much more seamless experience from playing your instrument and then you know, checking the tuning and then playing it. Playing it. I mean, you can go back and forth. And, and really, if you're on stage or if you're, you're uh, again, just doing a recital or something, it's just part of the instrument, and I, and I really like it. I, I won't mention the brand, but if you look look for this online, you'll see this this low-profile tuner. Oh, please mention oh. the brand. All right. Uh, maybe they'll pay me. Uh, the Adario makes a, a twin set of low-profile guitar tuners, which uh, they, they clamp on very nicely to, uh, to instruments. Nice. I have a ukulele. Will it work on that? It will work on that. It will definitely work on that. Nice. And then which uh, Wi-Fi analyzer do you go for? Is it just an app on your phone or? Yeah, it's the, it's the Android app. If you just search okay. for the Wi-Fi analyzer, you'll find it. 
All right. Good deal. I just want to make sure that I'm linking up to the right one. All right. Well, this has been really fun. Thank you all for coming. I know we went a few minutes over, but the, no the picks are fun. So yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up, folks. And in the meantime, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.